All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning and uh, looking forward to continuing our series on Doctrine for Life. Hopefully you had a chance to pick up a handout. Um, it can give you a place to jot some things down or you can just listen, whatever's um, most helpful. And just by, by way of review of, of what this is about overall, is series is based on Paul Tripp's book, um, Do You Believe? And it's 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. So it looks like this. It's about that thick. What, I, what we love about this book is it not only lays out um, some of the doctrines of our faith, but also he explores applications of those. So we're really trying to do that as we go through um, this series as well. And we pop kind of in and out. And so last year we covered the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, um, the Trinity, the holiness of God. If you missed those, you can find those on our YouTube channel. It sounds so cool to say that, our YouTube channel. Uh, you know, anyhow, I'll just leave it at that. Um, anyhow, <laughs> that's a way you can uh, watch what we did before if you missed those. Um, but now we're spending um, three weeks on God's sovereignty, and then we'll move on to a few other doctrines as well. So this is week uh, two of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And not approaching all of the philosophical questions of it, I mean, those are things we can think about, but um, broad strokes what the scriptures show us about the sovereignty of God and the difference that makes in our lives, um, which is actually really rich, I think, as we go through it. And so um, I'm going to review a little bit, but why don't I pray and then we'll review from last week and then we'll look at some more texts and some more um, applications. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people. We thank you for your word and the amazing way that you have revealed yourself to us. We think of what life would be apart from your revelation, what it would be apart from knowing you. Um, the fact that you control all things and that you are loving towards us as your people. Uh, these are things we may know in our heads. We pray that as we study them this morning, you would help us to more and more know them in our hearts and that they would shape the way that we live. Um, so help us in this by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just to bring us back up to speed as we're um, chipping away at sovereignty here, what um, does it mean that God is sovereign, or that could be another way of asking that could be what's a definition of sovereignty. Um, Paul Tripp lays it out nicely, I think. It means that God is in absolute control of his world and everything that happens without any gaps, limits, interference, or thwarting of his rule. And then he goes on to say, it means that God alone determines all that will happen and rules the means by which everything will happen. I think if you were to take one little thing, kind of right there, if you get that, that's a very simple understanding, and I don't mean simplistic, um, but just a boiled down understanding of the sovereignty of God. God alone determines all that will happen, and he rules the means by which those things will happen. And there are all different ways he um, has those means work out, um, but he is in control of all those things. That's what it means for him to be sovereign. And there are two aspects then of God's sovereignty. And you even see that in that definition. He, he determines what will happen and then he obeys uh, and his providence, his decrees and his providence. The decree is the decision that he makes, the eternal plan that he has. Um, if, 
a, a really helpful supplement to this material and to Tripp's material is our um, London Baptist Confession of Faith. Their work on the sovereignty of God is just, I mean, the whole confession is just so helpful um, in how succinct it is. But chapter 3 is about God's decree. And um, it, it unpacks what it means for God to have a plan and to will things. And so it's just helpful to kind of look through some of the distinctions they make there. But then, so the aspects of God's sovereignty, his decrees, and then his providence. Providence means not only that God determines what will happen, but that he actively rules over the processes by which that happens. Um, so that's his providence, the ruling over the means. And that means that he governs, sustains, he affects and controls all things to providentially bring about the things that he's decreed. So you've got a plan, and then you providentially bring that plan about sovereignty. Um, so chapter five of the confession is about God's providence. So you have chapter three talking about his decree, chapter five talking about providence, chapter four talking about creation, um, just so you know, and I, I found it really edifying to look over again. So I know Ryan said he wouldn't check your homework, but he's not leading today. So uh, I'm going to check your homework. Um, anyone remember what the homework was from last week? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Does anyone remember last week? That is a good question, too. Um, this um, Circles. I heard circles. Great. Um, does anyone remember what the circles are? Yeah, Amanda. Yeah, what's in your control, what's out of your control. So the first circle, circle of responsibility. These are the things that are within our control. Um, Ryan was saying a lot of times we think way more things belong in this circle than actually belong in this circle. Um, and then the other circle was the circle of responsibility. Um, I'm sorry, circle of concern. Wait, I, bleh, circle of responsibility, good. My notes are wrong. The slide is right. That makes sense. Sorry. So just pay attention to that. Um, circle of concern are those things that are outside of our control that are really uh, under God's control. And so what are we supposed to do with the things within the circle of responsibility? We trust God with them, and then, but we seek to obey what he's told us about how we should live in those areas. Um, and then also we seek to just be faithful with walking those things out as best as we can. With those things that are outside of our responsibility that we have very little control over, um, it's a much more a much greater proportion of entrusting. Those are things that we entrust to God's care. Um, and as much as they intersect with our lives, we seek to be faithful and to obey, um, but we uh, understand that. So how did that go this week? Did anyone... Um, think about that at all? Good. Glad we all, uh, good. Well, maybe this week you will. And then, uh, anyhow, uh, just helpful to review. I know that uh, sometimes you leave here and it's on to the next thing. But these are overall helpful categories to be thinking about. Um, so, as we continue on, um, expanding more on our understanding of sovereignty, what we're going to do is the same thing we did last week, just with different texts. We're going to look at glimpses of God's sovereignty, 
Uh, We're going to look at two scriptural passages that teach us about God's sovereignty, and then we'll look at uh, how it applies to life. And I have um, three areas in mind that we could look at. Last week, um, again, review. Anyone remember what passages we looked at or what kind of topics we considered? Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, there we go. So Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. Anyone remember the first one? That's even farther back. It's like a, it was like 20 minutes before that. So it's stretching. It was the Exodus. So, okay. So we looked at the Exodus narrative and we looked at uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, this week, we're going to look at two more, Jonah and Sparrows. And so um, let's just think for a moment about the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is a 48-verse story. It's pretty amazing how short it is, right? And it's in the minor prophets section of Scripture, and there's hardly any prophecy uh, that's going on in the book. But Paul Tripp says Jonah gives an entire biblical worldview in a Facebook-like post. You know, 48 verses, but there's so much in there about how we view God, how we view the world, how we view the nations, and how we view God's interactions with his people. Um, you see in it God's power and his glory and that he rules the world. You see that it's a world that's broken by sin. I mean, the, the thrust of it is the capital city of Assyria, Nineveh, um, great wickedness taking place there at that time in history. Um, and so one of the things that Jonah highlights is God's sovereign rule over creation. So let's think back to the story um, I should have brought a flannel graph. That would have been fun. Um, but when, when the story begins, God's call comes to Jonah, right? And then what does Jonah do? You can murmur things, and I'll just pretend you said the right thing, but it makes me think you're, like, tracking. It's good. He ran away, right? Uh, Jonah runs away. And then how does God respond? He throws something. Yeah, he... Um, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Um, Just picture the imagery that's there. It's like God picks up a glob of wind and just whips it (laughs) at the boat that Jonah's on. Um, That's kind of the, the picture that's created. And it goes to the exact location of the boat that Jonah was using for his escape. So, God uses wind and then causes the sea itself, which again, in biblical imagery, the sea is the place of chaos. Like who can control it? Uh, God can. He can send wind over it that makes it do what he wants it to do. And it becomes so rough that it scares these seasoned sailors. And so right away we see that wind and waves obey God's sovereign command. But there's more. What happens then when Jonah's thrown into the sea? God does something, right? And the Lord appointed, there's, word, there's language of sovereignty, right, that's going on. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So now we see it's not only wind and waves, but animals, uh, fish, a really large one, large enough to hang out in for a few days, um, is under God's sovereign rule. All kinds of mystery to that. Um, I, I can't wait to watch the movie of that in heaven. But what it's teaching is clear, God's sovereign control over creation. Now, maybe a giant fish seems like something God should be in control of, right? But what about smaller things? Um, Jonah continues to show us that, right? 
we come to chapter 4. Now the Lord God, again, appointed, appointed a plant that it, and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. So God's sovereignly ruling over plants, um, supernaturally causing it to grow up like that um, to provide shade. And then last but not least, does anyone remember the last thing that God appoints in uh, Jonah? A worm. Yeah. Uh, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So, again, Jonah teaches a lot of things, but if, as we're looking through the lens of sovereignty, wind, waves, fish, plants, worms, um, from really big things to really small things, are all under the sovereign control of God. And so that's important to understand. But the other thing that we can't miss is why God did all of this. And that's a lot of what the book of Jonah is teaching us as well. God isn't doing all this just to flex his muscles, just to say, like, look how well I can throw wind around um, or make all the worms do what I want them to do. Part of what Jonah beautifully shows us is how God unleashes his sovereign power as a tool of his grace. He's using his sovereignty in a gracious way to bring about a purpose. The storm, the fish, the plant, the worm. Why is God doing all of that? He's after Jonah's heart. (laughs) He's trying to do something redemptively in Jonah. And as we zoom out, we see what he's trying to do as well and what he's accomplishing is bringing about the salvation of the nations. He's bringing about the repentance of the Assyrians of all people. And that's really hard for Jonah, right? It it goes back to kind of the Romans 15 thing that we looked at last week of like, wait a minute, I thought this is for us. And if other people hear about that um, and they turn and repent, I know that you'll show mercy to them. And I'm not sure I like that in my God. I kind of want to keep you as just for my people. Um, Romans 15 pushes hard against that, right? God is using his sovereign working of all these things to bring about this purpose. And so Paul Tripp says this, God employs his sovereign rule over creation to rescue and redeem his own. And that's good news. So Jonah's showing us sovereign control of everything, but also the purpose towards which God is using that sovereignty. Even after all of the running even after all of the pouting that Jonah was doing, um, God can do exactly what Jonah's soul needs to have done. Um, and that's, that's a beautiful thing to see in the narrative. And so just as we, I know this isn't the application time yet, but just even in thinking about the Jonah story, part of what it tells us is there is nothing that I need according to God's plan that he doesn't actually control. (laughs) He can control everything that's needed. He does control everything that's needed to bring about the purposes he has for my life, from wind to worms. Um, And so that's part of the vision of sovereignty that the scriptures want us to have. So that's, that's one glimpse of it. Why don't we look at the second, and then we could just... Um, pause for some interaction, and then um, move into the applications. But the second one, um, it's not just the Old Testament that talks about God's sovereignty. 
Jesus also tells of God's sovereign care, and it's important to see how he speaks of it. We find this in Matthew 10, 29 to 30. Um, you can turn there if you'd like. I'll, I'll be putting it up as well. But the, the context right before Jesus talks about the sparrows is interesting. Does anyone remember what the context is? The context is really martyrdom. Don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. The, the peril that God's people will be facing um, instead have fear for God. But then the fear of God involves actually understanding who he is. It's, it's not the same fear you'd have of um, rulers who may put you to death. And so he, the text says this, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Um, Mark knew I'd be doing this passage, and so he didn't come today because it would have like bald jokes or something. But no, just kidding. Uh, He's out of town. Um, This is an amazing thing. Two sparrows are sold for a penny. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Um, Have you ever wondered how many sparrows fall to the ground or die each day? Paul Tripp did, so he Googled it, so it must be true, right? So anyhow, uh, Google says 13,700,000 sparrows die a day. And so that's 5 billion sparrows a year. I can't even picture that many sparrows. Like, where do they all? Anyhow, we'll just, uh, that's, that's a big number, right? Uh, 13,700,000 sparrows And what is Jesus saying? Not one of them dies without God's involvement. Notice that it doesn't say um, without God's knowledge. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's knowledge. It doesn't say that. It says apart from your father. It was interesting. I was reading what R.T. France says about this. He's a, a commentator who's super helpful about things. And he says it's really interesting where people take this verse because your your theology will shape what you think about it. Um, Because it says, like literally it says, apart from your father. And if you don't believe as much in God's sovereignty, you relegate it to knowledge. It's a passage about omniscience, right? God even knows how many sparrows die. Um, But I think the text is pushing us towards something deeper than that. Um, Apart from your father, apart from his decree, his providence, his involvement in these things, we have a theology that is robust enough to handle that. It seems it's more like his providential rule. It's his authority that's involved in this process. And if we think that's a lot, that he is involved in the lives of over 13 million sparrows a day, um, it's actually small in a sense compared to how intimately he's involved with each one of us. Because it says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Think about that. They're all growing and falling out according to God's sovereign providential rule. Um, I Googled that because I was just curious, and it's like 90,000 to 150,000 hair follicles, hairs on the average human head, um, and that changes throughout time. Um, But pretty amazing to think of how that's going on and how completely God is involved with us, right? But there's something else that's crucial to see in this passage and it's, it's important not to miss this. 
how much does this happen apart from your father? That what Jesus brings into the discussion and brings to the forefront is this God who sovereignly rules from the wind to the worms, um, from all sparrows' lives to the hairs on your head, is known to us. And he's known to us as our father. Um, R.T. France says, the implication is apparently that nothing happens to the children of a loving father which falls outside of his providential care. It neither takes him by surprise nor frustrates his purpose. This saying does not, of course, promise immunity from death or suffering for God's people, but only the knowledge that it will not happen without your father. It all happens under his fatherly care. And so, you know, so much then in Scripture is against this impersonal view of God's authority and rulership. Um, This is what other religions offer us. This is what's in the air. Um, You hear so much talk on like shows and movies and interviews with celebrities and things about the universe. I guess the universe just whatever. Um, And that's a very common way of speaking today. You know what that completely lacks? Personhood and care. Scripture gives us a control that goes way beyond what people mean when they speak of the universe orchestrating things. It's so much more than that. But what's so much more than that is it's a relational ordering of things. It's a relational sovereignty. It is our Father who rules the world, and he does so with the wisdom and care of a protective father as he would for his children. Um, He always does what, Paul Tripp says, he always does what is best for his children, even if they lack the capacity to see it as best, which is um, what we often feel this side of glory, and we'll talk about that in application a bit. Um, So Tripp says, open your mind and let your imagination expand, he says, and fight against against discounting the impossibility of this. I think we hear giant numbers like this, and you you think of like how big of a pile of sparrows that must be, and we get all distracted by that, and we're like, ah, too big, it's just out, too many hairs. Um, Instead, he's like, no, let that do its work. And let that open your mind to then saying, this is my God, and he is my Father. That's where scripture calls us to go. It's pretty amazing. Um, Before we move into application, which I I really do want to get to, because that's kind of, but I I think I'll just open it up. If uh, anyone, any questions just on what I said, or anything we just need to, clarify um, before we move into applying it. Yeah, Mike, let me bring this to you. Thanks. Craig, can you talk a little bit about the tension we might feel between the decrees and the providence like classic, you know, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, yeah. and how we make a real choice that we're not just robots, and yet he is really in control. Yeah. I know it probably takes a whole class, but... It's, it's yeah. really easy. I mean, just set, just spend a few seconds on it, and it solves everything. Just kidding. No. No, uh, giant profundity, right, in how those things are working out. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Um, really helpful just to think of it as 
compatibilism. Um, I think, anyhow, so God absolutely sovereignly in control, and yet the means by which that happens is creaturely freedom that we have. And so um, it's a both things that seem contradictory to us, working together um, within God's sovereignty. And so um, we are genuinely willing and determining and choosing things, um, and God has made us free to do that. Um, it's not that we're robots or secretly being tricked, but our freedom is limited by our creatureliness, and our freedom is also limited or inhibited by um, our fallenness. And so we can't, even in our freedom, just will something to be like, I choose to fly. That's outside of our creaturely design, right? So also, what's happened in the fall is our choices, things that we are willing and choosing, are things contrary to God's design. Um, And yet, instead of overriding that, God is breaking in with his grace and in the midst of that freedom, helping us to see the wonder of the gospel um, in such a way that we are actually choosing and deciding and all of that, and God is still absolutely sovereign and orchestrating all the means by which his plan comes to pass. So that's just like a quick summary of it, but the bottom line is holding both of those things. Like, I am not a robot, fully humanly responsible, and God is also absolutely in control and providentially working all things out. And where that lands us at the end of the day is really just the profound complexity of how God uses means to accomplish his purposes in various ways. And when we think a lot of times of ordering and controlling something, we think of forcing. And um, God has so many other tools at his disposal in the terms of the means. And he's able to use our free agency in still orchestrating all of that. It's, it's just, at the end of the day, we're just, um, our minds are blown by that. Um, But that's kind of a short summary of how those things work together. Um, Compatibilism is how we would, how theologians talk about bringing those two things together. The confession also walks through some of those things and does so really well. If you just kind of pause on each phrase and look at the proof text, it can be helpful if, I know that's just a super short summary, so. Um, Kevin, and then we'll, we'll go to application because I'm realizing as I'm talking, some of this comes out as we do that too. So, yeah. Another whole class. Okay. But uh, I just wanted, if you could briefly touch on the nature of prayer as breaking into the yeah. circle of concern that God invites us to um, be um, participants in those things that are really outside of our control. Yeah, so it is a whole other class. So come back next week, and that's one of our applications, is that prayer really matters within God's sovereignty. It drives us to prayer. So so I'll cover that next week. <laughs> so perfect, because we'll need to give it more time than that easy thing of compatibilism. That's a joke. These things are just way, they're huge, um, but it's good to just chip away at them. All right, let's talk about then how this affects our lives, right? Um, and I just want to say, I just want to say at the outset, sometimes we can come to a doctrine like this and we, we break it down into these pieces and then we come to applications that say, if God's really like this, then what should that elicit in us? 
And it can sound like, this is just how it is, this is how you should be, and if you're not there, what's your problem? Because that's just what it is. Um, That's not the goal of talking about this. The goal is holding out what scriptures say, thinking about what that would cultivate in us so that we can see what we're trying to garden toward in our souls and praying that God would lead us along in that process. So I I just want to say that at the outside, that if you hear this as like, what's wrong with me, or I'm worrying and so I must not trust God's sovereignty enough, or like that it's just this one-to-one simplistic, like get it together before 1030 when we worship, um, that's not it. It's what are we aiming toward? What does scripture invite us toward in in gardening our souls toward a a, a robust understanding of God's sovereignty? So that's just a disclaimer um, as we think about application. I I plan on looking at three things that... uh, that are applications of this, three differences that that makes. The first one, God's sovereignty brings humility, or God's sovereignty should bring humility, or God's sovereignty humbles us. God's sovereignty brings humility. Um, When we understand, I mean, you look at the book of Jonah, (laughs) and you see what God's in control of, and then you go and try to control the wind, or even like keep the worms away from where you don't want them to be, or um, you know keep your hair from falling out, <laughs> like those types of things. God's sovereignly in control of all that, and you just realize at the end of the day, like I am in control of so little. Um, there is so little that I have sovereignty over. Much more of what we do is actually just seeking to be faithful and steward something, but we really don't even at the end of the day have a ton of control of things. How much can you actually control? Uh, James reminds us of this. He says in James 4, 13, um, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And so we're making plans and thinking we, we know what's going on. And yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Um, And so we could think that this is just a knowledge verse, like we just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But notice where he takes it. Instead, you ought to to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. It's not just that God knows things that we don't know. It's an invitation to a posture of saying, God is willing these things and I don't know his plan And so I have to walk humbly according to that understanding. Um, Our finitude, the brevity of our lives, all of that is in contrast to God's ultimate sovereignty over all these things. And it's really tempting as creatures to act like this isn't true. Obviously, we have to make plans. Scripture tells us to wisely plan. You know, that's, that's a part of life and, and we should do that. But it's tempting to act like we control things way more than we do. Um, and it's tempting to act like we can really plan things out and make them happen much more than we really can. And it's tempting to take credit for things when God is really the one who brought those things about. And so that just kind of pausing and realizing how much God is involved in how things work out and how little our role is helps humble us as creatures. Um, 
Paul Tripp says, the sovereignty of God teaches us that we are not independent actors on the stage of life, but rather we are constantly dependent on the one who has planned and daily orders everything in our lives. And one way you could think about this is even just think about someone who has a really successful career and the different ways they could frame up thinking about that. Um, No matter how hard that person has worked, no matter how well they have stewarded their gifts to lead to that point, there is no way they could have controlled all things in the economy or all the people in their company or all the networking decisions that had to work together in order to bring them to that point of success. Did they have a role to play? Did they seek to be faithful and steward in their circle of responsibility? Yes. But even in that, which we think, wow, that person's successful. What did they do? We forget that outer circle (laughs) that says, The economy and all kinds of other things are under the sovereign control of God. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, and he's speaking about pride toward one another, but I think it's still so applicable. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so God's sovereignty helps humble us a little bit when we're tempted to think of ourselves as the sovereigns in our lives which um, is a huge temptation for us in various ways, I think. I think what we could do is, I, I could pause at each of these just to see if there's any interaction on that, of God's sovereignty humbling us. Any thoughts about God's sovereignty humbling us? Have you seen that in your own life? Is, it, is that a good place to be? It's scary. I'd like to be humble. I just don't want to be humbled. (laughs) And unfortunately, the two go hand to hand, don't they? It's usually a process of humbling that makes us humble. Um, But a humble heart is a worshipful heart, is what Paul Tripp says. Humility is the posture of a believer. any, any input? It's okay if not. I mean, I can talk the whole time, but we'll, we'll pop up here to Andrew and then... Uh... Yeah, when I, uh, when I had my head injury, God like immediately humbled me and I'm very prideful and just like, oh, I do not have control. Like, I can just hit the cement and die. Like, this is... I, I'm very fragile. And just yeah. realizing that really shook me up and changed things. But... Even now, like, for me, that's a big event in terms of God's sovereignty is, like, I look at that and, like, everyone would say that's a bad thing to have in your life to have a massive head injury. Yeah. And there's ways in which that's correct. But I would, if you were to say, like, let's run this all back, I'd say do it to me again because I'm here. And he said, you know, I'm going to humble you and get you where you should be through that. Mm. And I'm just like, I that was awful. It was really hard for me in many ways and people around me, but... I would never reverse any of that in that. Yeah. It's an interesting sovereignty situation. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you see that Jonah-like working of it's toward a goal in your soul and he's orchestrating these things um, in an amazing way. It's, it's neat to reflect upon. Yeah, Kevin. I, I think on the flip side that um, it's really comforting to know that God chooses the weak and the foolish things to humble the proud. So um, 
re- kind of rejoice in knowing how weak and foolish I've been, and yet God is able to uh, work um, through that and, and despite it yeah. in some ways to orchestrate good. Right. Yeah. Also, I think it gets it gets easier as we get older mm. <laughs> to uh, accept uh, such a limited control of our lives. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully it does. I, I remember talking, I, I don't know how many of you remember Paul Kelly um, used to attend here and uh, had, had many health struggles and things, and I was talking with him about how that was for him, and in particular with bodily weakness research I was doing. And I remember him saying that um, weakness will come to all of us as we age if, if the Lord gives us that time. But he said, if you're not stewarding a, a view of weakness as something God uses, then often it hits you and it's really hard for you. But if you've been embracing your creaturely limitations and allowing those to like humbly make you dependent upon God, then it helps as you become more and more dependent. Um, if we start that trajectory early on, you know, and uh, I, I thought that's that's interesting. Um, so cultivating this, um, I am not God. <laughs> I'm not sovereignly in control, and that's okay, is a really good thing. Because if you think about it, what does um, thinking we are in control, Ryan hit on this last week a bit, but what is that going to produce in us? Does it produce anything good? I mean, maybe drivenness, which can be good uh, toward the right end, but pride is really what it, and then, and then anger when people don't get in line or anger at yourself when you didn't measure up to your checklist that you had for yourself or despair because you didn't do that. So, I mean, it doesn't take us to good places to try and be God when we're not. Um, if we could sum up um, so much of what Scripture says, it's like, you're not God, that's okay, come to him dependently. And so sovereignty is one of those things. All right, well then let's uh, take a look at the second God's sovereignty also brings joy, brings joy. Um, How can that be? How is it that knowing that God is sovereign could produce joy in our lives? Paul Tripp says, Few things produce greater comfort and joy than knowing that your world is not a place of impersonal chance and chaos, which is how it can feel, right? Impersonal chance, chaos but it's actually under careful rule, and the one that rules it is your Father by grace. That's an amazing thing. It doesn't mean we always understand everything. It doesn't mean that the hard things that are going on don't hurt and cause grief and our loss and all. Like, all of that is there. But remember, our biblical view of joy is not that it's just there as a smile. It's that it is this deep thing that accompanies the losses and difficulties of this life. And part of what can accompany that is this knowing this is not all by chance. Everything, wind to worms, is ruled by God, and that God is my Father by grace. Um, That orients us in some things. Tripp says, wherever you go, your Father rules. Whatever you face in your life, your Father rules. When you pray, your Father who rules also hears. In amazing grace, he unleashes his power and authority for your good. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the ways Romans 8.28 can be misapplied. Um, 
but anyhow, the, these things are all true in that. And then Paul Tripp mentions his own experience of severe health trials. So this is overlapping with things Andrew's mentioned and then Kevin was mentioning about weakness. But I'll just read what he says. He's endured much physical sickness and suffering in the last seven years, several years when the book was written. He says, though I am doing well now, I deal with sickness and a weakened I will deal with sickness and a weakened body until I die. The most severe moments of my suffering were marked with a deep and untouchable joy. And then notice, no, I wasn't celebrating my pain, but I knew that even in those moments, I was crying out to one who was sovereign over every element of what I was experiencing. I knew when I cried, Lord, help me, Lord, help me, that my sovereign father heard me and had both the willingness and the power to answer. I can't imagine going through these moments having no one to cry out to who had the power to answer. Now, again, we can say, why aren't you changing things? But that's far different than saying you don't have the power to and you don't hear. You know, like we can, all these things are things that are in the mix of of what we're going through. And his sovereignty brings this joy over the power of God. Um, And that that leads us to our our last application. So let me move into this and then we can um, see where it goes. It brings joy. But then finally, God's sovereignty invites trust. God's sovereignty invites trust. Um, At the end of the day, mystery, a lot of mystery, (laughs) is going to remain because we are creatures. We are not privy to God's secret counsel. Um, He has not told us what's coming next in our lives. And we face confusion we face mystery, we face surprise, and having a confessional view of God's sovereignty doesn't take any of that away. Um, Tripp says, because we've been given an intellectual and conceptual abilities by God, we hunger to know. We hunger for life to make sense, and we hunger to understand. That's part of how he made us as thinking beings. We don't like to be confused, we don't like to be surprised, and we don't like to live with unsolved mystery. Um, But that's what life in a fallen world brings to us. Um, And part of our experience also is that God's sovereign control is not always obvious our experience from our creaturely side often feels like the world is spinning out of control, doesn't it? It feels the exact opposite of sovereign control. And I think it's important just to realize our, our creaturely ability to process the things of the world. <laughs> we live in a technological age where between this screen or the one I carry in my pocket or whatever, that godlike information is just coming to us all the time. Um, you think of eras gone by where you relied on the newspaper or a messenger to come to your town or whatever, and the amount of things happening in the world were kind of human-sized to be able to process in our minds. Here's what's happening in my town, and even that's overwhelming and hard, right? And then, oh, this major world event is taking place and someone's making me aware of it, now we can immediately open a screen that gives us like 
all this view of the world, but not a godlike capacity to process it. And I think part of the angst that we feel is by thinking we should be able to take all that in and process it as God would, and we just really can't. And that goes back to what Ryan was saying about a wisdom in limiting our intake of things. Um, God sees all the wickedness in the world, and it doesn't overwhelm him. And he has a plan to work these things into this beautiful tapestry. We face the wickedness in our own hearts, and we deal with relationships in our lives, and that's like as much as we can faithfully handle in many ways. And so again, it's not saying like be completely uninformed, but just understand that the the taking it all in isn't something that we were ever made as creatures to do. Um, and so again, kind of that's where humility comes into even just our intake of the breadth of what's taking place in the world. And that, that relates to this experience we have of feeling like everything's spinning out of control because we can only control like this much. And then you say like, well, what about our state? What about our country? What about other countries? What about famine? What about the environment? What about and you, all these issues? How are we going to fix it all? And it's, we're, we're, not, we're not God. Faithful circle. It's about this big, you know. So anyhow, that's kind of a digression again, but we can't keep track of it all, and we weren't made to, and God's sovereignty invites us instead to trust him. Um, There are so many questions we may have in God's sovereignty of what all is happening out there, and then that leads us to why is it happening and how can we fix it? God's word, remember the question that it really takes us to? What question is this in the, what do we have, five questions we go through? What, where, when, why, how? I left out one. Who? Isn't that where Jesus takes us? To your father is the one who actually has the Twitter feed of every sparrow that died that day. Um, and it's more than just he was aware of it. It's that he's orchestrating um, in benevolent care everything in his creation, and he can handle it. Um, and it's it's not even surprising. He's like, oh yeah, in eternity past, I've decreed this. I mean, that's just amazing. Um, Jesus reminds us who's in control, and it's your father. And so think about it this way. Tripp uses this illustration of having to say no to his children. Um, knowing that they wouldn't be able to understand why, right? And so you have to say no about something your kids really want, and you know they're not at a place that they could even compute the complexities of why going to bed earlier or not eating all that sugar or whatever it might be. It could be much bigger than that. Uh, they can't handle it. And he says, he would say this. He would says, Daddy would love to help you understand why, but if he told you why, you still wouldn't understand Does your daddy love you? Does he want good things for you? Does he want to keep you safe? Then trust your daddy. And he said he would send them out of his bedroom saying, walk down the hall and say to yourself, I don't know why my daddy said no to me, but I know my daddy loves me. What brings the child rest in that moment? 
rest for children is not found in figuring everything out, right? And it's not like once we turn 40, 50, 60 and have more things figured out, all of a sudden life becomes more restful. It actually can be, it gets worse. <laughs> it, uh, anyhow, it, there are challenges with it, right? Where does the rest for a child come from? It comes from trusting their parents who have more figured out than they do. Lord willing. Um, it's an analogy. But that's an analogy in an imperfect, fallen way of this actual perfect way when we think about God's sovereignty in our lives. Um, Tripp says, rest is not first found in understanding things, but in trusting the existence, power, authority, wisdom, and love of the one who rules all the things you wish you could figure out. You see how it takes you to that who question? And that's really, it's not that the other stuff don't ever give thought to it. You know, that's part of the faithful circle of responsibility things. Um, But when we think of how scripture answers questions related to God's sovereignty, it does give us knowledge. It gives us categories. It gives us things of understanding that we've been looking at in scripture, but it can't explain everything to us. And God doesn't tell us everything that's going to happen or why. But what it does do amazingly is it reveals to us the God in whom we trust. (laughs) Um, Tripp says, God answers our... I'm just going to read a paragraph. Y'all up for that? I I think he says it really well. God answers our desire to know and understand not by giving answers, but by giving us himself. Um, Let me see if I have... Yeah by giving us himself. There, there's the slide. He reveals to us his existence, his rule, his wisdom, his faithfulness, and his love so that we can experience peace and rest of heart even as we are faced with painful mysteries. And the more you come to know him and understand the character of his loving care, the deeper your rest becomes. And then he says this. I think this is just a beautiful picture. So walk down the hallway of your life today and say, there are many things I don't understand, but I know my father is in control. I know he is wise and good, and I know he loves me. Says you'll need to say that to yourself again and again, because there will be other mysteries, other things that seem to make no sense and bring pain to your heart, because God is God and you are not. But ultimately, rest is not in knowing but in trusting. And so I I think that's really helpful for us to see that God's sovereignty is an invitation to come to better know and trust his character. And again, we have all these categories of things like lament that are bringing us to him in the hurt, but calling out to say, I know this about who you are, what are you doing? But it also says, and help me to trust you even though it's not all going to make sense. Um, so that's what I had for today. Any um, closing thoughts on that or questions, things you'd like to share? Worship on a Sunday morning is a trust-forming event. 
that's what it uh, is, is meant to be. We come together in our times of doubt and confusion, and we see others who are trusting, and it reminds us there's a God who's trustworthy. Um, we come to the Lord's Supper, and we touch and taste and take in signs of the surety of his promise and that everything he's promised he will perfectly bring about. And it's a testimony of his love and care for us when we look at the cross. And so it says, trust me, <laughs> trust me in these things. And so um, so much of the liturgy of worship is to form our hearts in this way, um, in between the not knowing that we face day in and day out. Robin has something, yeah, and she loves talking into the microphone. I'm just thinking a summary. Yeah. God's sovereignty is a foundation to stability in our lives. That's really good, yeah. God's sovereignty is his foundation towards stability, towards a rest, towards a joy that's there even alongside the blues of loss and difficulty and pain. It's really good. Yeah, Bruce, he's tucked in the back there. He keeps his distance from the teacher. Yeah. Sorry, it's a joke. Yeah, I was just reading over the week, and I think it was uh, some of Paul Tripp's, and something just really struck me, and it was like to think back of, you know, look back over, um, you know, the last 10 years or 20 years of your life and then just see how much of it turned out the way you had planned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I just thought that, you know, that's one thing that's kind of neat as we, uh, you know, get older, the perspective that we can see when we do look back over yeah. more years and just see how, how faithful God's been, even though um, it might look a lot different than what we had thought, you know. but And that's what I find so comforting is that, you know, when you when you can really rest in that, mm-hmm. and just you know, it's it just really is um, brings you joy, like you said. Yeah, yeah, that retrospective look at what God has done, which is in our own lives, it's in the lives of the people here as we share our testimonies of what God has done with one another, and then Scripture gives hundreds of years of testimony of that, uh, and it it helps us better understand God's character when what we're in is dark and mysterious. So, Well, good. Well, let me pray, and then um, we'll fellowship together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for how you've revealed yourself. Um, we confess that it's stretching to our minds to consider your glory, how awesome you truly are, how sovereign you are, how powerful, um, and yet how loving and how near and how gracious you are with us. We pray that you'd help us as we seek to grow and cultivate trust in you. Um, We pray you'd help us to encourage one another with your testimonies of faithfulness and to leave space for the questions and the laments. And we look forward to the day when we will see the beauty that you have been weaving together and orchestrating under your sovereign plan and providence. So thank you for telling us that this is who you are and inviting us to come to know you more. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.